hey, we're going to try something unique. Uh, and you may have to come up to the front row to grab some of them if there's not enough at those tables. But there's index cards at every one of these tables sitting out here and pens. Could you do me a favor, whoever's sitting by those, and pass them out. Make sure everybody gets an index card. And you might have to share the pens. That's okay. Pencil's okay. Marker, crayon, any writing utensil you have. Matt's giving me the stink eye. He's really, he's really unsure about what's going to happen here. <laughs> this is nothing you have to turn in. It's okay. Now, now that everyone has a card, now that you've already done the work of getting a card, I can tell you what it is so that uh, you don't, you have no excuse now. You have a card in your hand, okay? What I want you to do, and I'm being 100% serious about this, is I want you to write down whatever has been filling you with worry or anxiety this week. Don't worry, nobody else is going to see this, okay? You can, you can put your little hand over it so no, the person next to you doesn't see it. You're not going to have to turn it into me. I'm not going to read it. I want everyone participating because if you don't, the magic trick's not going to work, okay? At the end, when I randomly pick one of you and I guess what's on your card and I have you hold it up and show everybody, like, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. No one's going to see this. This is just for you. Write down the thing that has been consuming your thoughts lately. Write down the thing that you've been losing sleep over. Write down the thing that you're just like, I can't wait to get past this. Or I am dreading when this conversation happens or when this bill comes in or if only this would be taken care of, whatever that thing is for you. You're gonna write it down. No one's gonna see it. And then you can turn it over. You can stick it in a purse if you have a purse, stick it in your Bible, stick it in your pocket, stick it under your seat wherever you want to put it, so you don't look at it, okay? Do not look at it. Got it? We good? All right. Now, some of you may still be working on that, so while you're finishing, here's what we're going to be doing. I'm going to catch you up with where we are in Luke. We've been going through the book of Luke. We've been looking at a section of each chapter. And so last time we gathered, we were in Luke 11. And I want to catch you up a little bit, fill you in on kind of what's transpired between the time in Luke 11 where Jesus taught us how to pray the Lord's Prayer, till where we are in the text today in Luke chapter 12, which is starting in verse 22. There's also Bibles at those tables if you don't have one of those, or there's an app on your phone for it too. So in Luke 11, Jesus taught us how to pray, and I want you to, to kind of get some background here. Luke is painting a picture for us. He's telling a story. Luke is telling a story through the story of Jesus, and it's the story of the whole world really. And the story is that God made all things and he is the king over all of creation. All that he has made belongs to him. He rules over it and he chose one specific creature of his creation to represent him and to partner with him in ruling over the rest of it. And so he, he sets aside humanity and he says, you have dominion. You have authority. You have control over all the rest of this creation that I made. I made it good, and I want you to care for it, and I want you to make sure that it flourishes. I want you to even make more out of it. And so he chooses to partner with us in that. And of course, we choose, humanity chooses, collectively we all have chosen to turn away from God's authority as the king over all the world and to start building a kingdom for ourselves. 
This is the story that Luke is trying to tell us. And everything goes terribly wrong, man, right? And so the story of the gospel is that Jesus, God himself, takes on the form of humanity, this partnership between God creator and human created thing that's supposed to reflect God in full partnership, we see that only done right in Jesus. Jesus comes fully God, fully man. He enters in and he starts undoing all the effects of the broken kingdom that we've established. And he starts rebuilding and retelling the story of God's perfect good kingdom. And so in Luke 11, where we were the other week, when his disciples ask us, can you teach us how to pray, Jesus? This is how he teaches them. He teaches them to pray for God's kingdom. First of all, you can go to this king, this creator of all things, and you can call him your dad. It's pretty incredible. But then you acknowledge that he is king, and it's his kingdom that you live in. And because he's a good king, you can ask him for anything. Right? Our Father, hallowed be your name. You are great and mighty and holy. Your kingdom come on earth, just like in heaven. And because you're king and you're good, give us what we need each day. It's a beautiful prayer that Jesus lays out. And what we see after that is basically this prayer Jesus teaches us to pray, it starts to get unfolded throughout the actions of Jesus. Jesus starts to to walk out that prayer. And so immediately after that, we get this story where Jesus goes and shows his power as king. And he starts casting out demons out of people. It's pretty crazy stuff. He's showing, no, no, I'm in charge here, and this kingdom of darkness is not going to prevail. And he casts demons out of people. And then immediately after that, he goes out, and there's now people that are starting to question him. And they're seeing Jesus do these amazing things. And if we look to Luke 11, verse 29, Jesus calls them out. And they're like, you're seeing me do these amazing things. The religious elite are questioning me for it. Others of you are gathering around because you want to see more amazing things happen. You're basically, you're looking for a sign. You're looking for this miraculous thing. And he kind of rebukes them for that. He says, listen, I am the sign. Just look to me. And so then you get this whole uh, conversation transpiring in verse 33 where he starts to say, if you're looking to the wrong things, you will be filled with darkness. But if you are looking to the light, which is Jesus, you will be filled with light and with life. Keep your eyes fixed on the king. Keep your eyes fixed on me, Jesus is saying. And so he's having this conversation, and then you get these religious leaders come in, the the people who know the ways to follow God and are telling everyone else how to do it the right way. And they're questioning Jesus. And Jesus starts having a little little tussle with them of words. Like they're going toe-to-toe. And Jesus starts actually getting pretty harsh with them. He's like, look, what you're doing is you're cleaning up the outside. You're following all the the rules to a T, but on the inside, you are not looking to the king. You're not looking to the light. You are filled with darkness yourselves. And he says this amazing thing where he basically says, where you would not enter into God's presence, you wouldn't enter there yourselves, but you're hindering everyone else from too. So it's bad enough like you're not looking to the light but because of all these rules and regulations and restrictions you're setting on the people, you're keeping them from seeing the true king as well. And that's exactly what they were doing. They didn't realize Jesus was the true king, and they were trying to set up all these ways that they could discredit Jesus in front of the people. So they get mad. Like he's calling them out, and they get angry, 
and their hearts are starting to get filled with anger and with hatred and maybe a little fear. Like this guy is undoing the whole way we do things here. The system we set up, it's working for us. Maybe not for everybody else, but it's working for us. And now this Jesus comes in and he's, he's undoing it. He's flipping things around. And so they're wanting to kill him. And Jesus knows this. So he starts warning people, listen, don't be afraid of people who can hurt you, who can take your life, because that's all they can take. And I think like some of the people around Jesus are probably like, that's quite a bit, Jesus. You can take my life. <laughs> like what else is there? And he goes, no, no, don't be afraid of those who can take your life. That's all they can take. Fear the one who has control over you even in death. And what he's setting up in that is that Jesus, who is going to get his life taken by these very people, has control over death even that he will come back to life himself. And what he's saying is, just like we read in Psalm 23 this morning, is that he will go through the valley of the shadow of death and he will come out on the other side into fullness of life. And if we trust in him, if we keep our eyes fixed on the light, on Jesus, the king, we will go through that valley of darkness and come out into light as well. It's beautiful. So Jesus has given us this word. That's Luke 11. And as we turn to Luke chapter 12, He starts saying, listen, he's continuing this theme. Don't fear them. They got nothing over you. Don't fear the whatever's going on in this kingdom. Look to me in my kingdom. And he says, he reminds us of that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need for today. He reminds us there's a good king who loves us. And he says this weird thing at the beginning of Luke 12. It is in verse 6. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? That's an interesting transition there, Jesus. Like, what are you talking about? At that time, you could buy five sparrows for two pennies, apparently, or the equivalent of two pennies to us today. And so what he's saying is, look, they're not really worth much. They're not worth much. But not one of them, he says, is forgotten before God. This is God's creation still. You may not place much value on it, but God cares for it. Five sparrows for two pennies, and in your idea, in your eyes, maybe they're worthless, but the God who created them, who set flight into their wings, he sees every single one of them. And Jesus is setting this up as an illustration to point to something even greater. God cares about his good creation, and particularly the creature who he chose to partner with to rule over it. So he follows it up, verse seven, with why even the hairs of your head, many of you have heard this verse before, right? Even the hairs on your head are numbered by God. Some of us are trying to help him out and we have less hairs for him to have to count. It doesn't say anything about the hairs on your face, but I think he probably knows those too. So fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. That's like the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me before. You're worth a lot of birds. Look, 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 five sparrows, two pennies. God knows every single one of them. You're worth way more than all the birds to God. It's beautiful. It's pretty incredible. And so he continues to talk to them about, so look to me, look to the king, acknowledge me before this dark kingdom, before all these other people who think they're in charge, who think they will rule, or even yourself who tries to rule in your own heart, acknowledge me as king, and I will acknowledge you in heaven. And so 
that's leading us right up to this weird moment in verse 13, chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So Jesus is laying out to the crowd, I am the king over all creation. Keep your eye on me. Acknowledge me. And this dude in the crowd goes, oh, this guy's in charge? Good. Hey, you need to settle a dispute between me and my bro. He owes me some money, I think. Like, that's where he goes. And I wonder, this made me question myself this week, if Jesus truly is king and if I really do see him as king, what do I go to him for? Jesus, you're king over all of creation, the whole universe. Hey, can I get a nicer car? Like, seriously, all the windows in our pilot have fallen down. I've replaced the regulator two times on each window, and three of them are out again. I went to unlock the car the other day because the remote fob thing doesn't work, and so the, the key would not get into the door lock, and I had to open it through one of the windows that were down. So that, I was like, okay, cool. This is why my window doesn't work, so I can get in my car. But then what, what I found out is the security thing, if you open it that way, starts going off. And it won't shut off until you stick your key in the door and unlock it, but that's the problem. I can't stick the key in the door. Jesus, can I get a better car, please? What do we come to him for if he's king over all things, right? This guy is like, I want, I want the money from my dad. There's, a, there's this thing in our culture where the oldest son gets all the inheritance, but like I grew up in the same household. I think I deserve a part of that too, right? And Jesus is like, listen, this is not why I came. I didn't come here to be a judge and arbiter between you and your brother and your little squabbles. Get over it. Okay, maybe he said it kinder than that. I don't know. But he's like, this is not why I came. And he starts to tell this story, this parable. Jesus tells a lot of them about a man who had a whole lot of stuff. And he has a whole lot of stuff, and he doesn't know what to do with it because he doesn't have enough room for all of his stuff. Right? And so this is in, starting in verse 16 of chapter 12. So he's like, what do I do with all this stuff? Well, I know. I'll tear down all my barns and my storehouses so I could build bigger ones. And then I could have more stuff, and I could put that more stuff in my bigger barns, and I could look at myself and I can go, self, you're doing good. Take life easy. Just relax, right? Basically like retirement. Like you, you're good, you got enough now, just enjoy life. And in this story, this man that Jesus is making up, God comes to that man and goes, you're a fool. You're gonna die tonight. What's gonna happen to all your stuff that you're saving up? Who's it going to now? And God's saying, listen, I own even your life. So all that you have belongs to me too. All right, now we're ready to get into our text for today. You good? Did you follow that? I want us to see all of this is taking place, transpiring after the prayer that Jesus taught us. That Jesus is king. He starts casting out demons. He's got control. He's got the power. He's got the authority. His kingdom's coming from on in heaven, the way it is there, it's coming down to this earth. Jesus is demonstrating that. You can trust in this king to provide for you. You don't have to store up things for yourself and try to hoard things for yourself and try to work so hard for yourself because there's a king who owns everything already and he will give it to you. And all that is the groundwork for what we see here in verse 22. So if you can, if you're able to, please stand with me. We're gonna read Luke 12, verses 22 through 34. Thank you. 
and maybe I have five minutes to do an actual sermon on it left. Verse 22, and he, being Jesus, said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be, oh, are you guys going to read it out loud with me? Yes. It's going to be hard. We're going to be all over the place. We've done this before, though, but this is a long one, so I just want you guys to be prepared, okay? So I'm going to back off the mic so we can hear you guys read it. And he said to his disciples, was beautiful, you guys. I don't know why that one verse was grayed out, but you did it well. Father, we pray that your word would open up our hearts and our minds and our ears to see you more clearly, to look to you, Jesus, as the king, to be filled with light and truth, that we may walk in this world recognizing it belongs to you, bringing your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Keep my words from straying from your truth, God. Speak through me. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Jesus talks a lot about birds in chapter 12. Five sparrows worth two pennies, you're worth a whole lot more than those sparrows, right? And then we see this. He says, consider the ravens. This is verse 24. They don't, they don't sow anything. They don't reap anything. So not sowing with a needle, but like sowing seed into the ground, reaping the harvest. They don't do any of that. They aren't going out working the land, and yet God provides for them. There's always food for them every single day. Remember when we talked about in that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. You're like, give us what we need for today. I'm relying on you that tomorrow there will be the food I need for tomorrow. And how that would have sparked the imagination, the kick the memory back into gear for the Israelites to remember the time where their ancestors were in the wilderness. And God gave them bread each day. Just enough for that day. If you stored up too much of it, what would happen? Yeah, it'd spoil, it, it would rot in, fill with maggots, get moldy. No one wants to eat bread like that, right? I just like cut off that piece of bread and then use the rest of it. But that, he's like, no, just store up what you need for each day. Trust that I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And that's really kind of the whole, the whole uh, conversation he's having with this rich man that comes to him. Or with the guy who's like, hey, tell, tell my brother to give me money. And he tells the story of the rich man. It's like he stores up all this stuff in his barns for what purpose? Trust that I will provide for you daily, just like I do the rest of my creatures. The animals, they don't, they don't have to go out and do that. They're mine, I care for them, and I give them what they need each day. How much more will God want to do that for his children? How much more will the king of all creation, want to do that for those who he partnered with, he chose to partner with, to rule over all things? How much more would the God of the universe want to provide for the ones he willingly made in his own image to reflect what he's like? Like, do you see that? That's how much he cares for you. And the birds flying around, they're not worrying. They're not filled with anxiety of where their next meal's going to come from. Why do we? 
in my house, I care about the things in my house. I care about the stuff that I have. I care about uh, the, the walls not having holes for my kids fighting. I care about even the dog. And you've heard me tell stories about Millie. It's hard to care for that dog. But I do. Every night, I go, hey, has anyone fed the dog? Because I don't want it to die from starvation. I don't feed it myself, but I'm making sure it's getting done, right? There's a little bit of care there and concern for this dog. But I don't care for any of those things, and even that dog, nearly as much as I care for my kids. Of course, my wife, too especially my wife. I'm just trying to make an illustration of like father and children thing here, okay? But I'm not omitting the spouse. Care for my wife, maybe even a little more than my kids. I'm just trying to make up for that? No? Okay. Totally derailing here. Point is this. God cares for all of his creation. But there's a particular concern for the well-being of his children. When you're worrying about that thing you wrote down on your paper this morning, I wonder if maybe we're also forgetting who our dad is. I wonder if maybe we're forgetting that we have a father who's in control over all that stuff and he cares for you. I wonder if maybe we are believing some other lie about ourselves, about our identity and who we are, and we're forgetting the fact that we are a loved child by God. Could that be true? And what he's saying is, listen, listen, whatever you have going on, whatever you need, he says this, all the nations, all the nations are trying to figure out how they're going to have enough food. Like this isn't a time where there are famines. That was a a common thing. They're all trying to figure out how to make it, right? but you have a father who knows what you need already. You don't have to go tell him. And he has it. He's got deep pockets and he wants to provide for you. Now, we could take this a whole different direction if we want to right there. Like, I've heard someone say before, like, God's got deep pockets, he's got you, right? And, And we could totally misunderstand what that means. And I think this is why Jesus also points out the lilies of the field. Because he goes, look, there's lilies in the field. Look how beautiful they are. And he says, not even Solomon in all of his splendor, all of his glory, the richest king in your history, Israel, not even he was dressed as well as these flowers. So how much more will God provide for you? And there's an interesting thing Jesus is doing here. It almost sounds like a circular argument. Like, all right, there's Solomon. He was dressed the best out of every person that walked this earth. But the flowers, they're dressed better. So you, how much, like, it doesn't seem to make sense, right? Hold on, you just said Solomon was dressed better than us, and now you're saying the flowers are better than Solomon, and now we'll be better than flowers. This is not, the point is not that you will be like walking around in the nicest threads if you follow Jesus, okay? The point is not that you will get all of this wealth and prosperity if you follow Jesus. Jesus says Solomon in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in all the things Solomon tried to do for himself 
to clothe himself in glory, that didn't even compare to the glory that God gave to his creation. So if you're keeping your eyes fixed on who the king truly is, not King Solomon, not yourself as king over your own universe, if you're keeping your eyes fixed on the true king, how much more will you be provided for? That's Jesus' point. You may drive around a Honda Pilot with 200,000 plus miles and the windows are breaking down and it's beeping as you drive down the street. All right? But, but you will be provided for. You will have what you need and more than food and clothing. More than just what are you going to eat today? More than just what are you going to wear today? See, I think when we hear people say God is good in terrible circumstances, like sometimes I cringe at that because it's just become like this platitude we say now to try to help ourselves, a little mantra to kind of like push us through and persevere a little more. Like, man, things are terrible right now. My marriage is falling apart. My kids all hate me. My job sucks, but God is good. If I just say that a whole lot, I might make it through today, right? And then I, I hear that, and sometimes I would go, wait a second, that doesn't sound very good. You don't have a good life going on right now. How can you still say that? And this was a misunderstanding on my part. Because I think if you truly understand what that means, that God is good, it doesn't mean, when you say God is good, when Scripture tells us God is good, it doesn't mean you will have comfort and pleasure by being with God. It means you recognize that God is the one who satisfies himself. He satisfies. Not he will give you all the stuff you want. He is the one who satisfies. So it's like when you say, that word good is not I will do good things for you necessarily. That word good is satisfaction, fullness of life, joy, contentment. Yes, I do have all this crap going on at work. Yes, life is hard right now. But you know where I'm finding joy? You know where I'm finding satisfaction? You want, do you want to know where I'm finding contentment? God, he's good. Being with him. That was what Jesus was talking about right before the prayer. Do you remember he said, he was asked that question, what's the most important thing? He said to love God love your neighbor, and then in that prayer, he teaches us to be with him because he's good. How do you have the strength and the energy within you to love people? Because God's love is so good for you. Being with him, fixing your eyes on him, what are you looking to? Is it filling your eyes with darkness or with light? Are you looking to your circumstances to bring you satisfaction and joy and comfort? Or are you looking to the good God who satisfies? And this is so much easier said than done, right? So much easier said than done. And Jesus is saying this to people who are wondering what their next meal is going to be. I, I am wondering, I'm not going to do that magic trick I joked about earlier and guess what each of you wrote down, but I'm wondering and I'm assuming that at least 80% of us did not write down where is my next meal coming from? It, and maybe you have, right? Maybe you did write that. And I want to encourage you, that is also what God gives a community for. And so if like, you're wondering where your next meal is coming from, please come talk to me. 
But I'm making an assumption here because of where we live and because of the freedoms and the things that we get to enjoy that most of us did not write that down. And so when we hear this, pray for your daily bread. Trust that God's going to provide your meal for you. Trust that he's going to provide clothes for you. We're like, yeah, no, I'm pretty good there, right? Maybe we want those things to be better. Maybe we still want more money in our account or a nicer car. But the reality is, like, we're pretty comfortable for the most part in those areas of life. And when I think about what anxieties possibly fill us right now, I think it looks a little different than that. I think it's, it's look, it looks a little more like where are we finding joy and satisfaction in life? Not are we going to have food on our plate when we leave this place, but do we have things in our life that are satisfying us? I get invited to go speak at schools often, and last year I went to this community in Sandpoint, Idaho, and there was like five high schools there that brought us out to come speak, me and a friend of mine. And we went there specifically because the lady who brought us out, who paid for us to come out, her daughter had committed suicide the year before. But not only her daughter, there were eight suicides, all high schoolers, that year in this community. And this is a a growing thing that we see going on. And as I've been working in schools, seeing that more and more, I've also seen research to back this up that it's not the sole problem, but a lot of that comes from social media. Like more than ever, we are looking at pictures of people having these perfect lives, perfect bodies, perfect, wonderful experiences, and we're measuring ourselves up to that and going, I don't measure up. My, my life is, it's meaningless. And we feel like we aren't satisfied. Everyone's got it better than me. And especially these young people who don't understand yet that there's a whole lot of junk that happens between photo to photo for those people that they aren't putting out there on Instagram, right? They're just seeing that little glimpse that they want to show you, that moment that they've manufactured in their life to look like everything's going well because truly they're not satisfied themselves either. And so they see those and they go, my life is nowhere near as good as that. And they start losing hope and joy and satisfaction and contentment and the things that God has given them. Could that maybe be the case for some of us in here too? Maybe it's not because you're looking at social media, but maybe you are looking at other things and other people, other moments and experiences, other lives, and going like, how come I don't have that? I wish I just had this. I wish I just didn't have to deal with that. Right? Maybe if my life wasn't so hard. And Jesus is saying, listen, you have a father who knows exactly what you're going through. I'm not going to be able to guess it, but he knows what every single one of you wrote down on that paper. He already knows it. He knows what you're wrestling with. He knows what you're struggling through. He knows what's going on. He sees, he hears, and he cares for you. And he is a God who is coming one day to make all of that right. And in the meantime, Jesus is saying, don't fix your eyes on the things that will fill you with darkness. 
Fix your eyes on me, the good king, the good shepherd. I will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. I will lead you to rest by still waters. I will lead you to lie down and rest in green pastures. I will be enough for you. I am good. And we know this because Jesus didn't just stay far off as the king and watch it all go down. We know this because Jesus, the king himself, did enter in to this broken kingdom that we've created. And he came to restore it because he cares about even the sparrows that are falling from the sky. And he cares about the lilies that are here today and gone tomorrow. And he cares about each and every single one of us. And so he's come to restore his kingdom and everything in it. And he's calling you to take your rightful place, submitting to him as king, but partnering with him too to bring his goodness to the world around us. And in order for him to do that, in order for him to enter into that, he also entered into every single part of the mess with us. And he, he felt all of it too. He wept when his friend Lazarus died. Even knowing he was gonna bring him back to life, he sat in the midst of that pain with his friends and he grieved with them. He wept. He felt anxiety. We don't think about Jesus feeling that often, do we? Like we hear anxiety and we think like that's a sinful thing. You shouldn't feel anxious. Just pray more. Maybe you're not believing the gospel, right? Like no, no, there's brokenness in this world. Things are, are messed up. And Jesus entered into all of that. And the night that he was going to be betrayed, he sat there and he was filled with anxiousness. To the point, scripture says that his sweat was like drops of blood hitting the ground. He knew what he was about to go through, that valley of the shadow of death, fully embracing it. And even though, like Lazarus, he knew he would come out victorious, he would come out to life on the other end, he still had to go through it and experience it all on our behalf. And so Jesus felt that anxiousness too. But Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't fix his eyes on the darkness. He didn't stay there in that moment. He fixed his eyes on what was coming ahead. The victorious rising out of the shadow of death. The victory of calling others to come and join him in that. The beauty of restoring God's kingdom the glory that you and I would have being seated with him next to the throne one day. He fixed his eyes on that light and he had hope and joy set before him so he could endure anything. And he did, he endured it all for you and I. Listen, we're all going through something right now. And maybe you had a pretty awesome week. But you know, you know what it's felt like before and you know something's gonna come again. It's the ebbs and flows of this world. That's the tension of this already not yet. Like Jesus has already come and had victory over death, but he has not yet returned so that we all experience that victory too in its fullness. And so in the midst of this, in the midst of the pain of whatever you're dealing with, fix your eyes on the light on Jesus, 
the king who has authority over all things, including whatever you wrote down today. Don't fix your eyes on the other. You guys, I needed to hear this so much this week. It's amazing how like so many awesome things could happen and then one, one thing goes wrong and it's like, ugh, you just want to give up, right? Because we're fickle people. We need to be reminded daily of the goodness that we have in a good king. And so here's what I want us to do. We're going to go to the table now together. We do this every week. This is a, a liturgy. It's a practice of God's people that he called us into. Because that night that he was betrayed, he sat down and he shared one more meal with his friends, the people following him, including the one who was about to go betray him. And he sat down with them before entering into that anxiety of the cross and of death. He sat down and he said, I want you to remember when things don't seem right, when the world around you seems like it's falling apart, when anxiety, depression, fear is weighing down on you, I want you to remember that I've conquered it. I've already handled it for you. Your father already knows what you need. Remember as he broke the bread, my body broken for you. Remember as you drink this cup, my blood poured out for you. I have entered into the valley of the shadow of death and I will lead you as the good shepherd out of it with me. And as we do that today, as we go to those tables, I want us to put another thing into practice this morning, okay? And I felt a little bit as I was thinking about doing this this week, I was like, man, that's so like something we did in youth group. Maybe it's a little cheesy, but I want us to do it as a practice of the people this morning, okay? As a liturgy. As you go to the table to remember who Jesus is, you also remember who's in control of that thing you wrote down on your paper. And so you have a choice. You can walk out and continue carrying that thing with you, or you can lay it down to the one who has already, already gone through it on your behalf. So when you go to the table, there's going to be a bucket at each table. We are not going to sift through the bucket later and read it. Okay, you can fold the paper up, you can crumble it, you can t- whatever you want to do, and just drop that thing you wrote down in the bucket, and then go and remember that Jesus has already bared all of that on our behalf.